Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show 258. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We've, the rains have passed. It's been, or honestly, for a, a week there, it's been hideous up the northeast of England. But it's, I'm looking out now and it's blue sky and, this, and the sunlight as well. So, hey, that just, if you have a look at, I don't know if anyone caught the, the news and the, the pictures, the images from, from the Newcastle area when the floods came and they're just washing away the foundation of people's houses. It was unreal. So it's nice to kind of wake up and, and actually see blue sky for a change. So I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up, it is the beginning of the month. So we've got Skeet with his art covering the sofa. And look at that picture. Wow. Next up is Amy H. Sturgis with her looking back at genre history. Nice to get Amy back on the sofa. Then right at the end, we have the main fiction, and it's by Keith Brook, the man who built heaven. And I'll tell you a little bit more about Keith and the story we're going to play. Before jumping into this week's show, just out of curiosity, and this is only purely for my benefit as well, is anybody into coffee? Because I seem to be slowly falling into coffee in a big way and kind of just totally submersing myself in it, kind of learning the art and learning all sorts and the history of coffee. I'm, I'm quite enjoying it. Is anybody out there into coffee as well? And just to let us know, you know, what kind of coffee you're drinking, what, where, you know, if you're, if you're doing the kind of the bean things and grinding your own beans and everything like that. I'm quite interested. You know, if anyone drop us an email, that would be fantastic. Starshipsover at gmail.com. Right then, we'll kick off with Skeet and his covering the sofa. Skeet, sir. Greetings, Starship Sofa listeners, and welcome once again to another installment of Covering the Sofa. I'm your host and art director, Skeet Sciansky. This the month of October 2012, we have the amazing David Moonchild Demeray and his featured piece entitled Wreck. This illustration takes us to a desert world with two suns. Canyons and dust fill the landscape with a foreboding view. In the misty fog of this canyon lies a derelict behemoth vessel long forgotten on this dead world. David has captured a moment here that projects a combination of time long gone by and a sense of extreme size, something I find difficult to relate in my own work, but it's represented perfectly here. 
He writes, I work with Photoshop CS4 on an Intuos 4 tablet. Rec is typical for what I love to illustrate, sci-fi, cold, and lost planets. Such inspiration comes from old sci-fi masters like Chris Foss, John Berkey, and John Harris. Born in France, David Demeray is no stranger to sci-fi art and has impacted the gaming industry for 20 years. Some of his extensive designs have been featured in games such as Duke Nukem 3D, Lord of the Rings, King Kong, Samba de Amigo, Driver, and Ghost Recon. Right now, David is focusing on art direction and mainly illustrations for novels and card art. He's illustrated some covers for the French edition of the Lost Fleet series, for example, and Cthulhu, and the Hobbit card games for Fantasy Flight Games. If you'd like to see more of David Demeray's work, you can find his blog at www.moonexcels.blogspot.com fr forward slash. That's m-o-o-n-x-e-l-s dot blogspot dot fr forward slash. And as always, we thank our contributing artists and look forward to seeing more of David's art here on Covering the Sofa. Back to you, TC. There you go. Like I say, have a look at this artwork. Wow, man. Fantastic. Next up is our very own Amy H. Sturgis, looking back at genre history. Ames. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. Today, I would like to talk about one of the authors who was inspired by Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I've talked in previous segments about how, in 1818, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley's Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus, took the world by storm. Its publication really marks the transition from proto-science fiction to modern science fiction, to the genre that we enjoy now. One of the readers whose imagination was captured by Frankenstein was Jane C. Webb. Webb was born in 1807. She was the daughter of a wealthy English industrialist, and in her formative years, she really enjoyed all the best that life had to offer. After her mother's death in her early teens, she went to the continent with her father and studied several languages. She was well-educated and well-traveled. It seemed like her future was one great promise— but when she and her father returned home, her father reaped the consequences of over-speculation. He lost his fortune entirely. He died penniless when she was 17, and Jane found herself alone. During that time, she read Frankenstein. She didn't really like it. That is to say, it caught her imagination. But aspects of the story seemed to have struck her as impious and problematic. At any rate, she was moved to respond in like form, and to try to support herself financially in the process. It certainly didn't escape her attention that Frankenstein was not only an important work, but it was selling very well. So in 1827, Jane published The Mummy, or A Tale of the 22nd Century. She published it anonymously, and it was immediately received with great enthusiasm. I should point out that that's the mummy, because there's an exclamation point at the end. Before I describe the novel itself, let me tell you a little bit about its historical setting. First of all, this came on the heels of a great Egyptology craze. There was great popular interest in archaeology, history, biology. It was inspired by the French researches during the Napoleonic invasion of Egypt. In 1821, in fact, in London, there were public unwrappings of Egyptian mummies. These would be followed by lectures on mummification and archaeology and such. It was kind of a quasi-educational entertainment for the upper class. This probably seems rather gruesome to us today, not to mention fraught with ethical issues and scholarly concerns from whether or not this is actually a respectful way to handle the dead to concerns about 
exposing these priceless artifacts to various contaminants and temperatures, etc. But that was what was done at the time, and although we don't have any proof that Jane attended one of these, considering where she was at the time and the circles in which her family moved, it's quite likely that she did go to one of these unwrappings. Certainly she was well aware of the public fascination for everything to do with Egypt and mummies. It's also clear that she appreciated the Industrial Revolution's new focus on steam power and automation, among other engineering feats. Her sensitivity to the scientific and technological mood of the time, then, really informs her novel. So what's up with The Mummy? Well, the story takes place in the year 2126. England is run by a corrupt government. And the book follows the exploits of the Irish King Roderick and his band of freedom fighters and all sorts of things going on with questions about the government and the royal succession. But not only the government has changed. Lawyers, judges, even doctors are now steam-powered automatons. Not robots, that term is still yet to come. But I'm telling you, this is a steampunk fan's dream come true. These automatons kind of bumbled their way into much of the service industry in society. There's also a lot of other steam-powered goodness going on. There's mechanical farming, for example, movable housing, and control of weather. From a technological standpoint, it's really a great read. It's noteworthy, too, because rather than simply being a tour of the future, wow, this is the year 2126, let's look around and see how things are changed. All of the world-building is, in fact, the backdrop to quite a compelling story. This marks it as a step forward in the genre. It's not simply futurism for futurism's sake. It's sophisticated futuristic world-building in the service of a plot and characters and three-dimensional story. It just so happens that in the year 2126, one scientist in Egypt is experimenting with galvanism, and he just so happens to bring the dead pharaoh Cheops back to life. Yep, he's the mummy! The pharaoh Cheops is, unsurprisingly, rather bemused by this development. He doesn't recognize the Egypt around him, but it also doesn't look like what he was expecting the afterlife to be. Fortunately, he is a very smart man, and he rolls with the punches, as it were. He escapes in an airship and makes his way to England. He gets over his culture shock impressively quickly, and he goes around the country giving sage advice, helping the protagonists while thwarting the villains. He even works together with a Roman priest to try to determine the next queen of England. He's quite the happening guy, Archeops. Here is how he describes his goings-on. And I quote, Permitted for a time to revisit Earth, I have made use of the powers entrusted to me to assist the good and punish the malevolent. Under pretense of aiding them, I gave them counsels which only plunged them yet deeper in destruction, whilst the evil that my advice appeared to bring upon the good was only like a passing cloud before the sun. It gave luster to the success that followed. Later, and here I think is the author's response to Mary Shelley, we learned that it really wasn't just galvanism that brought this ancient hero to the future, but God's will. There was a divine plan for Cheops to come back and intervene and interfere in the events of the future. And I think that's directly a response to what she found problematic in Frankenstein. There's all kinds of reasons that this novel is significant. For one thing, it's another transition story as the Gothic moves into science fiction. I've talked before in previous segments about how the Gothic was pretty necessary in order for science fiction to develop as it did. And here you can definitely see the Gothic still in full play side by side with science fiction and the two literary traditions being incredibly complementary there. In fact, this is one of the earliest examples of the mummy's curse trope in fiction. 
The novel also did something really interesting. It accomplished a complicated and sophisticated result by seeing a possible future through the eyes of a character from the distant past. Obviously, Pharaoh Cheops. Rather than having someone from the present day travel in time or become displaced in time, representing the contemporary point of view, here we get to see both the classical point of view from Cheops, and then also his perspective on the future. So it's a really interesting dynamic there, something that she handles quite well. This is also seen as an early work of feminist science fiction. Particularly because how women are described, both in terms of their actions and even, for that matter, their fashions. For example, women are described wearing trousers and wearing hair ornaments of controlled flame. I like to think of it as the early Katniss Everdeen look. Here is a description from the novel: Quote, "The ladies were all arrayed in loose trousers over which hung drapery in graceful folds." And most of them carried on their heads streams of lighted gas, forced by capillary tubes into plumes, fleur-de-lis, or, in short, any form the wearer pleased. End quote. Pretty cool, huh? As I've already said, this is a work that would certainly appeal to the steampunk crowd, proto-steampunk, if you will. Cheops describes the steamships on the Nile as quote, "strange infernal vessels vomiting forth volumes of fire and smoke." The infernal vessels, or infernal devices, or infernal machines, is a trope that returns again and again in steampunk. All in all, there's a lot here to like and to take notice of. There was also a side benefit to this publication in the story. Jane C. Webb describes a steam plow, and this description of the steam plow so fascinated famed horticulturalist John C. Loudon that he sought to meet the book's author. He looked around London trying to find the man who wrote this anonymous novel. Of course, it turned out not to be a man at all, as Jane later wrote, and I quote. It may easily be supposed that he was surprised to find the author of the book a woman, but I believe that from that evening he formed an attachment to me, and in fact we were married on the fourteenth of the following September. Yes, writing science fiction not only brought Jane C. Webb some much-needed funds, but it also led her to the man of her dreams. She later became fascinated with her husband's field of agriculture and gardening, and wisely saw both the need for and the potential interest in entry-level how-to books. So she set to writing, as she herself learned. And Jane C. Webb Loudon's Instructions in Gardening for Ladies, The Ladies' Flower Garden, The Ladies' Companion to the Flower Garden, Botany for Ladies. And the Ladies' Magazine of Gardening, among others, became the standard references for some time. The two had a daughter, Agnes, who became an author of children's fiction, respected in her own right. And so there is a happy ending to *The Mummy*. The novel is now available online in various formats on various websites, and I encourage you to give it a look. I do hope you've enjoyed this look back into genre history, and I look forward to joining you again soon. Thank you. Amy, thank you so much. Before we get into the main fiction, don't forget the Joe Haldeman. You know, if anyone comes along with that live lecture, tickets are on sale there now. That would be fantastic. From the website, you know where they are. So the main fiction today is by Keith Brook, and it is called "The Man Who Built Heaven." This story came out in 2008 in the Postscripts, the summer edition, edited by Peter Crowther and Nick Rivers. It was published by the, the PS Publishing. Now Keith, when kind of Starship Sova first kicked off, Keith used to run. I think it was still going at that time. The website called Infinity Plus, which was a great resource for you know the likes of me and Kieran. When we were digging in deep to the kind of history of science fiction and the writers and everything like that, Keith was kind of there. He was the guy that was running it, or I think he was, to be quite honest. 
Well, since around, I guess, 1989, when his first short story came out, Passion Play, which came out in Other Edens 3 in 1989. You know, he's been writing since then, right up to, to now, with War 3.01, was his latest one that came out in Lightspeed. I was published John Just Adams' Lightspeed magazine, the February edition. And Keith has mentioned, like I say, Keith with Infinity Plus as well, he's got a book out, I think it came out in February as well, called Strange Divisions and Alien Territories, the Subgenres of Science Fiction. And it looked like, from what I'm guessing at the website, I'll put a link on to Keith's site here so you can come over and have a look. If you're kind of into science fiction and, again, into kind of the genres and everything, it, this book's all made up of like little essays or essays by writers. Contributors in this volume, you know, some of them are Michael Swanick, Gary Gibson, Al Reynolds. We've got in there Adam Roberts, James Lovegrove, Christine Catherine Rush, Patrick Kelly, Paul DeFilippo. Keith's got one in there and Tony Balnine. So like I say, I'll put a little link onto that. Strange Divisions in Alien Territories, the subgenres of science fiction. This story is narrated by Jeff Lewis. Now, for the life of me, I cannot find Jeff's bio. I have looked all over. And Jeff, I apologise, sir. I'll have to get it because I've got some more work off Jeff as well. So we'll try and get it off Jeff the next time. Jeff, sorry, sir. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Man Who Built Heaven by Keith Brook. Last night I dreamed. The same old dream. The same old dream, and yet different. Every single time. You, laughing, fooling around. To see you so liberated, so you, is a blessing in itself. I hardly need more, although I always need more. You take my hand and lead me down to the river. Long, sleek cruisers line like toys along the far shore. A rank of needle towers, each sixty stories high, scrapes the sky beyond them. We walk and talk of childhood, of writing in chalk on the pavement outside your house, of tying skipping ropes between gate and lamppost to snare passers-by, of the beach nearby, childhood playground, childhood escape. Shaggy dunes altering with craggy extrusions, a row of white coast guards' cottages facing the sea. That childhood, long before you were elected. You will take me there one day. You tell me that. In the dream. The same old, different old dream. Noah Barak tucked his head low against the drizzle and walked. The river lowered flat and gray to his left, a scattering of tour boats lining the far shore, a single, half-constructed needle tower clawing a vertical, dark slot out of the city skyline. All around, people pressed, hurried, coats slick, breath steaming. Noah didn't like to come to the city. As one of the principal architects of what they had recently taken to calling the Accord, Noah, if anyone, should be adept at virtual working. And his studio out in the wild Essex flood marshes was normally his chosen place to work. But some days there was still no substitute for an old-fashioned flesh meat, and this was one of them. The fact that Electi Priscilla would be at the complex was irrelevant. Noah ducked lower against the rain. He was smiling, smiling at the pain and longing that loomed large over every aspect of his miserable, world-changing, epoch-making little life. The door slid open for him, greeted him cheerily. There was always a welcome for Professor Barak. He walked into the lift and closed his eyes to deal with mail while he was whisked up to the twelfth floor. She was there already, talking intensely with Warner but as the door opened, she looked up. Her eyes met Noah's briefly. A smile pulled at her mouth, and then she was talking again, her sentence barely interrupted. Noah and Priscilla were colleagues, she, the electee, overseeing the project, he, the advisor, the consultant, the architect. And there was nothing more to it than that. We're building it, Noah reiterated. 
It is an incremental process. With all the processing power in the world, we cannot push the process much faster than we do currently. We run and rerun realities all the time, said Priscilla, leaning towards him across the wide meeting table. He had explained that to her months ago. So many realities needed in order to build consensus. Noah's attention was caught by the charms hanging from a delicate silver chain around her neck. He had kissed that neck. He knew its taste. He knew the soft gasp she gave in response to the touch of his lips, his teeth, his tongue. But he did not. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Had not. Could not. We do, said Noah. It's the process. Consensual reality, however, is of a different order of magnitude. It will come when consensus has been reached, a critical mass of realities. An accord, if you will. He smiled, realizing that was the first time he had spoken the name aloud, the label the media were applying to the project. The accord, the consensual reality that would leave all other VRs behind, a reality built from the mass of human experience, a super-city of the mind, a reality where mankind could live on after death. Nor was its principal architect. He and his team were building the accord, Noah Barak knew that he would go down in history as the man who built heaven. And every night he ran and re-ran realities. Private realities. A consensus of one. Priscilla nodded. I'm not pushing you, Professor Barak, she said softly, her green eyes locked on his. I'm being pushed. In his head she pinked him, one to one. A warm hug, a friendly embrace. She didn't mean to come down on him like this, he knew. She did not need to mention the trillions of euros that had been sunk into this, but she mentioned them still. She did not need to push him. Noah Barak would deliver the accord. They all knew that. But still, they had to jump through the political hoops, and minuted records of these meetings helped tick the boxes in Brussels and Shanghai. We sit in a 17th century pub by the water. This time, this dream. We are out on the coast, a broad Essex Creek laid out before us through the windows. Yachts standing hiddly piggly on the exposed mud, waiting birds scuttle and probe. Dogs walk their owners in an age-old routine. We have just kissed across the table. We have just spent the morning making love. Sunlight streaming into our room above the bar. Her hand is on the table. I cover it with mine. You were so shocked, you say, chuckling, even though we had always flirted like that. Not like that, I say. That day, the day we were laughing about, was the day we had crossed the line, bleedingly. For the shortest of times, we had been more than electee and consultant. 
You ask, and I answered, you say, mock indignant. I ask what was on your mind. You seem distracted. It was. It was a revelation to me, a paradigm shift. That moment when you changed from Professor Barak to, oh my. Something about the look in your eye just then, the way you held my gaze a moment too long. You smile, reliving the moment, as we do so often. You didn't quite put it like that. Your smile broadens, so I was more succinct. You said you were imagining fucking me like there was no tomorrow. You look down. I shouldn't have said that. You should. I dream of you. I always dream of you. I make sure that I do. I'm the architect of the Accord. I can run reality. I can run realities. Noah had been hooked into pre-consensus accord for most of the day. Emerging was a disorienting experience. He had been walking the streets of a consensual Manhattan, downing bourbon with Dylan Thomas in the White House, unconvinced as ever by the quality of the reconstruct. That was not what the consensual reality was all about in any case. It was a consensus of the living, of the yet to die. Already the accord was being built from the consensus of a million souls, and the project teams were adding more every day, batched up and rebatched into assorted realities, fractal fragments of what would become consensus. Poor Dylan was a gimmick, a toy to amuse the electees in the media, and all he had was virtual whiskey and a way with words over which to defend himself. Noah rose from his chaise lounge and walked slowly to the window. Marie was down at the end of the garden, hacking at a rambling rose. Noah swallowed, turned his gaze away, stared unfocused at the distant marshes. Ribbons of silver water snaked through hard mud matted with samphire and purslane. He should not feel this way. He had done nothing wrong. He had not betrayed Marie, and not once laid a finger on another woman on the other woman, Priscilla, not once. He turned his back on the window. He had betrayed Marie many times. He had guilt many times over. He was betraying her now, always, repeatedly. He closed his eyes. Mail from Elector Burnham. Priscilla must have reported to him by now, even though Noah had given her little to report. The elector would want hard dates, commitments, a precise measure put on the unquantifiable. When do you know that heaven has been built? When do you know it is time to open the gates? No one knew they were close, but the gut feeling of an artist of the uber-real was not adequate for Burnham's needs. He opened his eyes, left the mail unviewed. Let them think he was lost in his work. He sat back onto the chaise and was immediately back in the data shell of the Accord. It was time to reload. Those who choose to live in the Accord after death would only do so at the last recorded instance of themselves. The final minutes, hours, days would be lost forever, all the way back to their last upload. Always working from the latest snapshot of the soul. Noah had not uploaded for almost a month, preferring to let instances of himself continue to play out their existence in the accord realities which he had placed them. But now it really was time to reload, before anyone spotted what he was doing. He drifted, allowed himself to be read for change, development, difference, so that the new him would overlay any previous instances. Outside the window, Marie sang an old pop song, something about love. Always something about love. He looked distracted. What's in your thoughts? He asked Priscilla. They were leaning close, drinking tea, peering into multiple overlays of data on the wide screen. Noah had been trying to explain the concept of fractal realities, how they would ultimately combine to form a super-reality, an over-reality, an entire virtual universe in which the dead could live again. She understood, he knew. She was just playing dumb, teasing him, toying with him. But then, 
Then she had paused, her eyes locked with his. Something had changed. You really want to know? He nodded. You sure? Her reluctance seemed genuine now, no games. Noah sensed boundaries being pushed, lines being redrawn. He nodded again. I'm thinking... Oh, fuck. I'm thinking... Christ, I'd like to screw that man like there's no fucking tomorrow. Noah stared. He felt his skin prickling with sudden heat. He felt his throat suddenly dry, his heart racing. He stared. I love you, he thought. He had always loved her from the very first day. And now you're thinking, Christ, how do I get out of this awkward, embarrassing situation with a woman who is ten years my senior and controls my budget, aren't you? She looked away now, down into her steaming tea. No, he said softly. I'm thinking how much I would like to kiss you right now, even though there are people in the room. I'm thinking how beautiful your eyes are, how... Here I am, a man trying to create perfection, but who has perfection sitting right at his side. And finally, I'm thinking, Christ, yes, yes, please do fuck me like there's no tomorrow. Warner strode across from his console just then. The Shanghai question, he asked Noah. Huh? Oh, Shanghai. They can wait, can't they? Warner gave him a funny look and turned away. By then, the moon was lost and Priscilla was staring to the distance, dealing with mail, moving on. You take me to New York, make me walk half the length of Manhattan. We take the ferry from Battery Park out to the Statue of Liberty and climb up and look back upon the city. You kiss me there. Kiss me while I look back upon the city of my birth. We cross Brooklyn Bridge on foot, heading ultimately for the heights. We both marvel and laugh at the aches and pains and fatigues we're suffering from all the walking. This is a reality, I remind you. This is meant to feel real. I'm showing you my childhood haunts, distant memories as they are for me. You want to know it all, everything about me. You want to get inside my head, find the real person that I am. I never knew anything like this, an all-consuming passion to share. You know me so well already. It is a continuing cause of wonder to me that since we started this thing, each of us has discovered a person, a lover, hidden inside the public person we already knew, and that the private you, the private me, we really are two halves of a single whole. How could we have known that it would be like this? How could we ever have known that we might have been missing if we had turned away, accepted the impossibility of our relationship? You stop me halfway across Brooklyn Bridge. I think it is to do the tourist thing and stare back at the view of Manhattan skyline, but no. You take my face in your hands and you kiss me long and hard. Thank you, you say in a quiet voice. I raise an eyebrow. Why? Just thank you. You take my hand and we resume our walk. Almost at the far side, you smile and say, Will you come and see where I grew up one day? I'll take you, show you everything. I smile. We will do that. It was nearly two weeks before their next encounter. Noah mailed Priscilla, gently reminding her of their conversation prompting her, but not pressing. Priscilla had not replied. He walked into the crowded boardroom and seated himself at one of the few remaining places. Electi Priscilla was already there. She had caught his eye immediately, held it. Noah swallowed, looked away. A short time later, Elector Burnham entered the room and the meeting could begin. Afterwards, there was coffee, and Noah mixed with the attendees until finally his path crossed that of Priscilla. You know that we can't, she told him, cutting straight to the point. It's impossible. Can't? Like there's no tomorrow, she said. Or like anything. You changed your mind? 
She locked his gaze. Not one bit, she said. So? Darling! A smile broke out across her features and she turned, kissed Elector Vernum on the cheek, one hand resting lightly, briefly on his chest. Elector? Noah said, bowing his head. Vernum studied him with narrowed eyes for a moment, then smiled and said, Noah, you old cold monkey. When you going to get finished, eh? Heaven can't wait forever. Later, as the crowded room started to thin, Noah got Priscilla's alone again. So tell me, he said, why is it impossible? He did not know why he asked, why he pushed. He had never done anything like this before. Had never been so compelled. She raised her eyebrows. Because I'm a respected electee and you a high-profile V-space architect. And if it ever got out, we could both be ruined. Because I'm married to a man who is not only one of the state's five electors, but an other ruthless bastard into the bargain. He would destroy you. He would destroy both of us. And not least, Noah. Because you are married too. Have you forgotten that? I've never done anything like this before. I never wanted to. And you won't. Not with me. I'm sorry, Noah. I should never have said what I did. It is simply not possible. Noah smiled then. But it is, he said. It is. Everything is new. Fresh. I have been reborn, but reborn whole. Adult. Myself. I have been reloaded. I'm in my studio, rising from the chaise lounge. I'm in a reality, I know. One of the fractal realities that will contribute to consensus. Out in the garden, you are there. Priscilla. My love. The other half of me. I remember you telling me that it wasn't to be. That we could never be. That it was simply not possible. I create realities. I run and rerun realities until one day they will come together into a whole, a consensus. In my realities, we can be free. We can be us. We can be. In my realities, we can explore the selves that we hide from the world, plot the course of our love, and find out what we really is and can be. In my studio, rising from the chaise lounge, walking towards the French windows, pushing one open, going to greet you in the garden, in our garden, in a world where all the complications, all the responsibilities and risks and assumptions, a world where all of that is as nothing. I have been reloaded. I go to greet you. Okay, then, she said. She wouldn't meet his eyes, and it was not simply that she was not looking directly into the cam. She did not meet his look. Okay. Come. Now. He's gone back to the city for the weekend. Come to me, Noah. Prove that what you say about us is true. Noah cut the link. He had told her. Told her how it was. How in realities other than this, they were able to be together and they had fallen so deeply, madly in love, gone way beyond the mutual attraction they felt now. Finally, he had told her that he loved her, that the Priscilla he knew from meetings and consultations and social events for the project was a woman who fascinated and beguiled him. And she had said, Okay, then. He pushed open the French windows of his studio, called across the garden to his wife. Darling. She looked. I've been called away. London. I may be late. She rolled her eyes and shooed him on his way. He loved her, and he was surprised at his own surprise. He had always loved her. This was not about him loving or not loving Marie. It was about Priscilla. Always about Priscilla. She told him to enter by the side door that it would be open. And so he did. He had never been to this house before. 
a weekend home in the heart of the South Downs granted to Elector Burnham by the state. The house gave every impression of being empty. She had told him that she and her husband had planned to be here for a quiet weekend and that Burnham had taken his bodyguard and two assistants with him when he was called away. Hesitantly, Noah called out, Priscilla? And then more loudly, Priscilla, are you here? She was in one of the bedrooms, lying slumped on the floor. Her body twisted. Blood pooled around her, staining the cream carpet almost black. Red spatters punctuated the wall in a nearby chair. Her face was white, so deadly white. One strand of her long hair trailing across her cheeks, her eyes staring, unmoving. The blood came from a gaping wound in her chest, but she was breathing. Noah rushed to her, kneeled, hot stickiness seeking through the knees of his trousers. He reached out a hand, tentatively touched the knuckles to her cheek. Her eyes moved, locked on him. No, Noah, she gasped. My love? He leaned closer. Her voice was so faint. He found out. Who found out? But he did not need to ask. Burnham. The elector had done this. He was suspicious. He read my mail. His face was almost touching her. His tears started to fall onto her cheek. He kissed her, softly, briefly on the lips. They had never kissed before now, and barely even touched. And yet he knew her so well, her responses, the way she moved. He knew what they could have had, what they could have been together. I find you out in the marshes, walking along the seawall, arms wrapped around yourself against the stiff easterly. You've been crying. I think you still are, although you smile when you see me. Noah, I meet your look and wait. Why can't we be like this in reality? I take you in my arms now, bury my face in your hair. This is reality, I tell you. It is now. You sense something. You've always been so perceptive to subtle changes in intonation and body language. What happened, Noah? I'll tell you straight. You're dead, I say. Burnham became suspicious, so he read your mail, found things we had said. He killed you. He'll probably get away with it. He's an elector, after all. You understand immediately. Oh, Noah, you say, stroking my cheek. You must hurt so badly. Out in the real world, the grieving, the loss, the pain of holding the woman I love in my arms as she dies. But there is more than that, the part you leave unspoken. Out in the real world, I would grieve, but then I would come to terms with loss, with a love that never really was. I would move on. With every day that passed, I would move further from you. I hold you away from me so that you must look into my eyes. I cannot carry on without you, I tell you now. How could I? Back in my studio. The drugs. They would have been quick. I took them after I reloaded for the last time. This is it now. This is our reality. A fractal reality, a component of the consensus that must happen very soon now. A critical mass of consensus realities that will take on a permanence of their own. A new reality. A new heaven. A new heaven for you, Priscilla, and me. I smile. We are together. What more could we possibly want? You said you were going to show me, I say now. You look briefly puzzled. You said you would take me there, to the place where you grew up. Now, at last, you manage to smile. You pull away, lead me by the hand back towards the cottage, the car. Together, 
electee and architect await the coming of consensus of accord. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Keith's. Keith and Jeff, thank you so much. I put a link onto Keith's site, so please go over and have a look at that book that he's got out. Strange Divisions and Alien Territories, the subgenre of science fiction. So that is Starship Sofa, show 258. Hope you enjoyed on this fine kind of autumn day. It's um, it's a really <laughs> nice to be back in the kind of real world and not hunkered down with the rains battering against the coast and again the floods coming in. So very nice indeed. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to pod. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Casting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about The District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.